Good morning. My name is Sam Randall. I'm the student ministries pastor here, and I'm grateful for the chance to share with you this morning. Um, and so typically, as the uh, student ministries pastor, I'm given kind of these, these strange one-off sermons where they're not involved in a sermon series. There's not a lot of guidance given. It's kind of like, yeah, you're preaching that day. Pick whatever, you know? And sometimes, months ahead, I'm like, I've got the perfect idea and it's going to be awesome. And sometimes I don't have any inspiration at all. And so that was the case this week. I didn't feel that inspired. So a couple weeks ago, I turned to the good old church lectionary in the hymnal. You may not even realize that that's a resource, but in the back of your hymnals, in the, you don't have to get them out if they are even there. Uh, in the back of your hymnals, there's a lectionary series that has kind of the liturgical church calendar that uh, many, many churches go through. And it happens to be that this Sunday in the liturgical church calendar, is Christ the King Sunday, which means that there are thousands of uh, church communities, thousands of assemblies gathered around the world that are talking about what it means for Christ to be King, that today is Christ the King Sunday. So that will kind of be our question today. What does it mean that Christ is King? What kind of King would Jesus be? That is our theme for today. Let me open with a word of prayer. God, we ask for your presence and power and peace to be involved in this whole service. God, that the words that I speak would not be my own, but would certainly be inspired by you, and that it would touch the hearts and the ears and the minds of those in here, including myself. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are king. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to begin with with a kingly story. In, in fifth grade, I was at Clear Springs Elementary School in the Minnetonka Public School uh, District, Clear Springs in fifth grade, and we did, um, I experienced one of maybe the weirdest things I've ever experienced in my life. It was Valentine's Day. We all made like these little Valentine's Day boxes, and kids would kind of bring their cute Valentines for everybody in the class. That was normal, but then we held an election for the king and the queen of Valentine's Day. Girls voted for the guys, guys voted for the girls to elect the king and the queen of Valentine's Day. I deliberated over my vote. I was like, ooh, like, she's nice, but she's nice too. I don't know who the queen will be. Cast my ballot, and the girls did the same on behalf of the guys. And lo and behold, who should be elected king of Valentine's Day? Me, Sam Randall, the king of Valentine's Day. Thank you. Yes. Um, if that wasn't weird enough, things got a little weirder. They hoisted uh, myself and the queen. Her name was Claire. We were put on top of like the desk structure in our chair, and we had our Valentine's bag, and all the, all the peasants had to go around and, <laughs> and pick one piece of candy from their bag and give it to the king and the queen. And we're like, yes, please, please, my constituents. It was so, so weird. <laughs> At the moment, it was awesome looking back, like, what was going on? I'm sure they don't do that tradition anymore. Um, but it got me wondering this week, for all of us, if given the option, if given the power, what kind of king or what kind of queen would you like to be? I think that I would like to be the kind of king similar to my fifth grade King of Valentine's Day self. That if I had all the power, then I would choose exactly what I was going to offer and exactly what I was going to receive. And I would choose to receive a lot. Just like myself in fifth grade, I'd be like, 
Yes, please, more Kit Kats. Yes, please, more power. Yes, please, more, 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 more. I would just want it all. If I had the power, I would want to hold on to it, and I would want more of it. But as I said, today on Christ the King Sunday, we ask this question. What kind of king would Jesus be? We see at the Last Supper when Jesus gets down on the dirty floor and washes the disgusting feet of the disciples, that Jesus is the kind of king that humbly serves other people. We see through the woman at the well, through Peter, through Mary Magdalene, through Zacchaeus, and so much more, that Jesus is the king who listens, that Jesus is the king who forgives. Jesus is the king who reigns over all, who is in control of all, who has all power, yet chooses to give rather than receive. Jesus always chooses love. Jesus chooses love over power, over wealth, over health, over privilege. Jesus always chooses love for the other, over all. Jesus chooses love over all. Our key text for today, from straight from the lectionary, comes from Luke chapter 23, and I'll read it. It'll be on the screen. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. That's the scene. For the original readers of this, when they first got the manuscript of the book of Luke, they would have fully understood what a crucifixion scene looked like. They maybe would have experienced it. It was a common form of punishment and torture back in the day. And kind of, thank goodness for us, we don't, we don't really have a context of what crucifixion was like. But I think it's worthwhile for this story to kind of lay out the scene a little bit more and what it must have felt like uh, to be an observer of the scene and what it must have felt like to be someone who is crucified. They would, have, they would have beaten Jesus and the criminals a few times over. Their backs would have been essentially raw from their wounds because they had been opened and, uh, and, and, and severed more uh, times over. They, they would have been exhausted from this punishment and this torture and had to bring their cross to the hill. There they would have been stripped down, and as it said, Jesus' clothes were kind of sold off like souvenirs to the people standing around. They would have had nails embedded into their wrists and into their ankles to hoist them up on the cross, and then they would have been put up into the air with the cross in the ground. And typically, how folks died from crucifixion was either extreme dehydration blood loss, or most commonly it was from asphyxiation because it was so difficult and so painful even to take a breath. They would have to hoist themselves up to get breath after breath after breath, and uh, eventually it was too hard to do so, too painful to do so. Their lungs would fill with fluid, and they would die. And that was what was happening in this scene. It was excruciatingly painful. In fact, that word excruciating that we have in the English language comes from crucifixion, excruciating. You see that? It would have been excruciatingly painful. The scene is filled with pain and despair and hopelessness. And I would imagine it would be deathly silent. 
And it is Jesus, whose crime is listed as the king of the Jews, who breaks the silence and speaks first. He says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Again, it would have been excruciatingly painful to speak up. Yet, Jesus, the king of the Jews, speaks up first. But he doesn't speak up on his own behalf. He doesn't stand up for himself. He speaks up on behalf of the crucifier, even while he's being crucified. He speaks for forgiveness. Jesus is so quick and so eager to offer forgiveness that he pleads on behalf, on behalf of the crucifier even while he's being crucified. And that's true even now. Jesus is so eager and so quick to offer forgiveness to us even while we're betraying him. Are we so quick and eager to offer forgiveness when we're wronged? Are we even so quick and so eager to accept that gift that Jesus is offering us? It's said that in, in crisis, our true selves are revealed, which I think is why sometimes when I'm cut off in traffic, I start banging my steering wheel and yelling and saying naughty words that I probably shouldn't be saying. It is in crisis when our true self comes out, and I'm working on that. I'm trying not to be uh, that angry in crisis. I'm trying to have a little bit more patience and a little bit better uh, temper, but it is in crisis mode that our true selves come out. Jesus and the prisoners, they're in crisis on the cross. And it is in crisis that true self comes out. And Jesus remains who he said that he is. Jesus remains the king who gives. Jesus remains his true self, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the Son of God. Because Jesus, even in the crisis of the cross, is in control. He's in control. He foresaw this type of death and was prepared for its reality. In John chapter 10, he said, talking about his own life, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus was, is, and will always be in control. Jesus is king. Even in the crisis of the cross, Jesus is in control. I think that Jesus had the power to get down from that cross if he wanted to. He could have walked on the ground and told everybody, see, I told you so. But it wasn't the nails embedded into Jesus' wrists that kept him pinned to the cross. It was love. There are two others up on that hill who are also in crisis. Let's keep reading our text for today. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Amen. Today you will be with me in paradise. It is in crisis that our true selves are revealed. And my suspicion is that the first criminal that spoke up, that his, his true self was a little bit of a smart aleck. <laughs> Aren't you the Messiah? Get down, save yourself, and save us. Of course, I'm projecting a little bit of sarcasm <laughs> into his attitude, but that's what I read from this. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other criminal, though, has a little bit of a different posture. 
But it's interesting because the other gospel accounts tell us that both criminals hurled insults and mocked Jesus up on the cross. Luke doesn't indicate that, but I don't think that Luke's account is a contradiction at all. I think it is completely possible. In fact, I believe that during this process and in this crisis, both criminals probably did make snarky comments, mock Jesus, and hurl insults at him. But one of them started to shift. One of them had a posture change. One of them noticed the presence and the power and the love of the king of the Jews, and he began to take notice. He makes, as he's on the cross, just the slightest movement. He couldn't have gone far. He was nailed to the cross. He makes the slightest movement to Jesus, takes a peek. That's about as far as he could go, just like that. The slightest peek over to Jesus, the slightest glance in his direction, and then back at the other criminal and says, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Remember, it would have been excruciatingly painful to breathe, let alone speak. But this man was inspired by the love of Jesus. He then makes the slightest movement back to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus does the same, making the slightest movement in his direction, locks eyes with him, I'm sure, and says, Amen. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. These are the clearest and surest words spoken to anyone throughout Scripture about their eternal salvation in this moment to this criminal. Today you will be with me in paradise. And it only took the slightest movement, the smallest glance, and the simplest request for this prisoner to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And for us to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, we need to turn to Jesus. Surely we do. We need to turn to Jesus. We need to believe that he is who he says he is, that he is the king of kings. To be welcomed into the kingdom of God, we need to turn to Jesus, but it only needs to be the slightest, teeniest, tiniest, itty-bitty turn. It takes but a glance toward Jesus to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Now imagine what those on the ground beneath this scene must have been thinking. Some, I'm sure, were inspired by Jesus' grace, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' love for his neighbor, the criminal in this. Others, though, probably the devout religious folk that Jesus spent so much time uh, with and frustrated so much with all of his talk of love and forgiveness of the stranger, they would have been frustrated They would have shouted, no fair! You see, they had spent their whole lives trying to check off boxes with the ambition of hearing a sentence like that, with the ambition of being welcomed into the kingdom of God. They felt like they needed correct theology, the perfect life, an A in Torah school to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. No fair! They're right. It isn't fair, it's grace, it's love. Jesus' neighbor on the cross needed not theology, perfection, or achievement to be welcomed in the kingdom of God. All he needed was the slightest glance and the smallest suspicion that Jesus is who he says he is. That this king of the Jews was a king like no other king. That this king of the Jews was the king who gives instead of receives. That this, Jesus, the king of the Jews, was the kind of king that even death could not kill. And even on the cross, Jesus, the King of Kings, identifies with the sinner 
and pushes back against the religious elite. What kind of king is Jesus? The kind that gives and even more than we even ask for. You see, here are the prisoner's requests. Again, he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter the kingdom of God. And that first request implies a bit of distance. He says, remember me someday when you enter the kingdom of God. Jesus responds with, today. He then asks, remember me. Jesus says, today you will be with me. He asks for the kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. The kind that gives immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, not because we achieved anything. He is the king that gives immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine because he loves us. And we know that in Romans chapter 5, it says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus gives the very best news to the very worst of sinners. Today you will be with me in paradise. Everything changed that day on the cross. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God. Jesus introduced the kingdom of God. And one day Jesus will return to complete what was started. This is the now but not yet principle of the kingdom of God. The fancy word for that is inaugurated eschatology. That's a a little too fancy, I think. So essentially what it means is that that day on the cross, like I said, things change and things change forever. Jesus introduced the kingdom of God. And a few days later, Jesus rose from the dead. A few days after that, Jesus was ascended. And he indicated that one day he would return to the earth and make the kingdom of God and the earth one dwelling place for God's presence and all of those who believe. That is the hope that we look for. The kingdom of God is amongst us now, but it is not fully yet realized. And that's the hope that we look for. It is the now, but not yet. And we live in the not yet. So what to do in the meantime? Earlier, before Jesus was crucified, when he was asked where the kingdom of God was, he responded with this. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. We live in the not yet of the kingdom of God, yet the kingdom of God is within us. It is amongst us here in this place. It is present right now. And until Jesus returns, then the kingdom of God becomes the mission of the church. The kingdom of God becomes the mission of the church. So that brings a question to my mind. And I actually want to hear your responses so you can say them to me. I don't know if you want to raise your hand or just yell them, whatever you want to do. The kingdom of God becomes the mission of the church. So what then is church? What is church? Anybody who's brave, Church is forgiveness, I heard. I like that. (laughs) Church is perfect little children. Worship, I hear. I like that. Yes, sir. A locker room for life. (laughs) That's kind of a fun image. Hope. Any others? Learning, growing. Good. I didn't hear that. What was that? Go, love, live. Yes, sir. 
Community, very good. Grace. I like what I'm hearing. This is good stuff. All of that is true. All of that is true. And I've made a few notes as well. Church, we often, I think, think of, I'm going to church as in we're going to the building, <laughs> right? Where Sunday is church. Church is certainly um, an assembly of the people of God, and we heard that in, in our remarks, whether it's community, the locker room of life. Church is an assembly of the people of God. Sometimes it exists within a, a building, for sure. Sometimes not, uh, certainly. Ephesians 2 shows us that church is the family of God, that in a lot of ways, church is family. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm not always super pumped about my family and I need to work on forgiveness and grace and acceptance of them. And I'm sure that that's true amongst us in this uh, church family. And also I think that the Bible shows us that the church is called into fellowship with the king. And I think you noted that in your responses that so often we think that church is the building that we go to on Sundays. But really, church is this assembly. Church is this family. Church is a group of us that are called to be here to worship, that are called to, to encounter God and to show God to the world. Way too often in my life, I've had the thought that church is Sunday. But really, church is Monday through Saturday. And this community is where we come on Sundays to worship God and get filled up for the next Monday through Saturday. Church is Monday through Saturday. And that's because Jesus is king. Jesus is not just king of Sunday. Jesus is king through Monday through Saturday. Jesus reigns. The kingdom of God reigns. And if Jesus is king of our lives, that means that Jesus must take over all faculties, that Jesus must reign in our minds and in our bodies and in our hearts, so much so that we are a community that isn't about a building, but that we're about bringing justice forward in the world, that we are showing other people this kingdom of God, that we are stepping forward into that mission, that the mission of the church is to bring the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is within you. It doesn't take much for us to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. It takes the mere, slightest, teeniest, tiniest turn to Jesus and the belief that Jesus is who he says he is. But then comes the hard work. I remember being, uh, I think, a freshman or a sophomore in college, and I was involved in a small group led by a seminary student. And the seminary student, we were talking about uh, salvation. We were talking about eternity. And we were kind of all worried as these young people of, uh, I wonder if we've done it right. Like, will we have achieved salvation? And the seminary student goes, oh, salvation? Heaven? That's the easy part. I was like, huh? Heaven? That's the easy part. It's what comes next that is really hard. And I think he's right. It takes but a glance to be welcomed by Jesus but it takes a gaze into his eyes to do the difficult work of the kingdom of God. It takes a gaze to do the work required of those in the family of God, those in the church, those who are members of the kingdom of God. To fix our gaze on Jesus means that we have to strive to be like him at all costs. To gaze means that we are staring, that our eyes are fixed on Jesus, that we don't deviate from where we're looking, that we are locked in on Jesus. To gaze means that we identify with the sinner before we identify with the religious elite. To gaze means that we offer forgiveness the very moment that we are wronged. And even in crisis, that we are to be focused on other people, that we're to be focused on our neighbor. It is difficult work, 
but it is the necessary work that God has called us towards as members of the family, as members of the kingdom of God. And thank goodness that we have each other. Thank goodness that a part of church is a gathered assembly, that it is the community that we talked about. When you feel like it is too much, like the kingdom work is too hard, lean on the brother or the sister next to you and rely on the example of those who came before you to inspire you to keep going, that you might be grateful that it only takes a glance to be welcomed, but that you can fix your eyes on Jesus to do kingdom work. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since you are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our gaze on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen.